Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we've got a special show for you today. We're going to be talking about G.K. Chesterton and all things Chesterton, and probably even get into a little bit of his uh, economic uh, and political theory with uh, distributism. But before we do that, uh, let me introduce myself, then we'll go around the horn and let the other guys do it. Then we have a special guest, and we'll let him introduce himself. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I pastor a church in the Pacific Northwest. I have been an academic, a real estate investor, a home improvement contractor, and I've written books. And I'm actually working on a, I just got a contract for a new book. Uh, and uh, it's going to be fun to write. It's uh, entitled, How to Defeat Communism in Your Spare Time. So anyway, uh, that that's uh, in the works. And enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, currently working for Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, moral theology, and philosophy. Um, one of the places at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And today we are joined by a friend of mine, and I'm not going to uh, introduce him. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but we've known each other probably five years or so, I guess. And uh, last time we were together was out in, I think, in Minneapolis. Uh, We had uh, lunch together. But anyway, uh, introduce yourself, David. So I'm David Devil. I'm an associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. Uh, Confusingly, I spent about the last 19, 20 years at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, So, but I am... uh, I was invited uh, by Chris to be on the pod, uh, podcast podcast uh, to talk about Chesterton, in part because I've I've made the study of Chesterton one of the big things that that I've done throughout my life, and I've given a lot of talks on him. And in particular, I give a, a talk annually at the Acton Institute's Summer Acton University on his topic of distributism, his third way economics. So one of the, so, but I'm ready to talk about all aspects of all things. <laughs> Chesterton and theological, wherever the conversation goes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great stuff. Well, you know, I think the thing that brought you and me together was you did a review of my book, The Purloined Boy, for Chesterton, the uh, special right. publication of the Chesterton Society. Yes, Gilbert Gilbert Magazine. Oh, Gilbert. Gilbert, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Gilbert. Yeah, I knew it, it had his name in it, but I forgot that it was yeah. his first name. <laughs> so anyway, uh, give us a little background on uh, Chesterton. I think a lot of our listening audience is familiar with him, perhaps uh, through his you know, work, Orthodoxy, which is a great work of apologetics. But maybe you can give us a kind of a bigger picture about a, you know, of a big guy. <laughs> yeah. He was definitely a big guy. I mean, as, as an adult, he was about six, two, six, three, and, and between three and 400 pounds at various points in his adulthood. Uh, Chesterton was born, uh, in 1874 in suburban London. He was baptized in the Anglican church, but his parents were really, uh, more fond of the Unitarian Church, uh, so he spent most of his youth in a kind of uh, a kind of theological fuzzy fuzzy land. Uh, he attended the he attended the famous St. Paul's School in London, uh, where Milton had gone several several hundred years before. Uh, he never did go to Oxford or Cambridge. Instead, he went to the Slade Art School. He was a talented artist. Uh, he was. Some people have speculated about his neurodiversity, perhaps, but he was certainly into art, and he was also a brilliant man, but not easily pegged into the academic spheres. The Slate Art School 
Uh, he said there were two kinds of people, those who did a tremendous amount of work and those who did none. And he was of the of the second category. <laughs> but the fantasiacle, you know, I mean, it was, yeah. everybody was experimenting with things. And he himself sort of experimented with the occult and it turned him away. And ultimately, that vague fuzziness of uh, his Unitarian background was brought to a kind of point at the end of the 19th century, as he met a couple of people, uh, one was a woman named Frances Blog, who would later become his his wife. Uh, she was a, a high Anglican, Anglo-Catholic. And he was said she was one of the first people he knew who, knew, who went to church, uh, you know, because she wanted to. Uh, <laughs> the other one was Hilaire Belloc, uh, an Anglo-French thinker, member of Parliament, also a prolific author, and they pushed him. Uh, to think more clearly, and he moved towards orthodoxy. Um, he uh, that was the I think Chris mentioned. Orthodoxy is probably one of the most famous works of his. It was written in 1908. He had written in 1906 a book called Heretics, where he critiqued the people of the day, and he was challenged by somebody and said, well, it's easy to take pot shots at everybody else, but what about saying what you believe? And orthodoxy uh, was the result. It's what he called a slovenly autobiography. Uh, mm -hmm. Other people call it a kind of a, a pre-theology or a philosophical theology. Mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about that. Uh, but he continued his development and, and continued to write many books. The Ignatius Press collected works are probably going to total about 50 volumes when they're done. Mm. Uh, the problem is they keep finding articles he wrote for people, <laughs> sure. works that right. he wrote. Um, so Orthodoxy is the big one. Uh, Everlasting Man is probably the, the other great work. Uh, it was a response to H.G. Wells' an outline of, the, uh, of world history, and Chesterton wanted to tell uh, about what world history would look like from the Christian point of view, and so he did. He wrote other works on uh, Thomas Aquinas, mm -hmm. uh, Francis of Assisi, uh, and then, of course, he wrote many works that you'll find his distributism in, particularly What's Wrong with the World and An Outline of Sanity, as well as many other works. Um, he Converted to Catholicism in 1922, uh, he, uh, so it was about 14 years after Orthodoxy, um, and he was beloved by many by many Christians from all different groups. He was a little bit hard on Calvinists, but many Calvinists <laughs> loved him. There's actually an annotated Orthodoxy that was done by a Reformed theologian about five years ago. Um, he died in 1936 at the age of 62. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, the Vatican sent a telegram offering condolences, calling him a defender of the faith. It was not allowed to be printed because, as historians know, defender of the faith is the title that was uh, oh, right. given to the English monarchs uh, since Henry VIII got it when he uh, he wrote against Luther before before his <laughs> own uh, tragic marital <laughs> marital affair. <laughs> Yeah, so Chesterton is much loved as, as a writer and apologist. Uh, I used to teach a course on him, and I call it the many worlds of G.K. Chesterton because he does have many worlds to his thought. Well, let's, let's go into a, a few that maybe uh, are under-acknowledged. So his uh, background in the arts is fun because he was quite a caricaturist. He, you know, when you look at his uh, drawings, there are a lot of, they, they, they've got a, a real flair, and they're almost kind of Disney-esque, and I mean that in a good sense, not in a yeah. bad sense. Sometimes when we talk about, you know, sort of Disneyification of the world, of course, this is before, you know, the Disneyification of the world. This maybe he's the guy that Disney got it from. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but, he, but I've got a collection of his uh, 
his drawings. They're a lot of, they're great. His relationship to Hillary Belloc is, is a lot of fun too. Cause, uh, wasn't it Bernard Shaw, the famous kind of like a debate partner with Chesterton that referred to them together as sort of the sort of the Chester Belloc uh, yeah. kind of creature? <laughs> yeah, he and said then, that was the uh, that he said, you know, this was this fantastic beast. And he thought Chesterton was so much better. But related to your point, uh, there were a number of books that Chesterton did with Belloc that they called Chester Belloc's where. Belloc wrote the story and Chesterton illustrated it. So that goes, okay. you know, he kept up with that art throughout his life in various ways. So, Wasn't there a collection by Belloc of like uh, all of these uh, children's stories where the, ch- the child ends tragically? As yeah, they- a bad child's <laughs> book of beasts. So <laughs> they're, they're, re- they're really quite delightful. So. Oh, yeah, they're a lot of fun. I've got moral tales for kids. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The kid who slams doors and then he dies. Yeah. I, I can't remember. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Most of them get eaten by creatures or <laughs> swallowed up by the earth or something. So. Right, right. Kind of a kind of a, the sort of thing that we associate with, like, uh, oh, who is the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Just drawing a blank. Uh, oh, uh, Dahl. Dahl, right? Yeah, Roland Dahl. But uh, now another thing is his uh, father uh, Brown stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he had his own detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Chesterton loved uh, detective fiction. He was actually one of the first members of the uh, the detection club that uh, he was actually the first president of it with people like Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, uh, his, uh, you know, Wilkie Collins, I think, uh, you know, in his late age was still alive. Um, Chesterton came up with this idea for a clerical detective. It wasn't the first one in history, but perhaps it was one of the, the most successful, in part because he met a character named Monsignor John O'Connor, mm-hmm. uh, who was an ordinary parish priest. He met him at a party, and they got to talking about various you know, immoral things that were going on, especially occult things. And uh, at various points, this priest would say, oh, no, no, that's not how they do it. You know, they you know, they boil the goat and, you know, explaining exactly <laughs> what, was, what was happening. And Chesterton yeah. said, you know, how on earth would you know that? And he said, well, you know, you learn a lot of things in the confessional. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he came, up, he came up with a great idea for a, a detective who would not be a kind of Sherlock Holmes, you know, he knew obscure facts about, you know, uh, combinations of chemicals, but instead he would know the human heart uh, more as a pastor and a confessor. And so Chesterton wrote there, the complete Father Brown includes five full volumes. It's, I forget, like five or 600 pages. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote these, especially when he needed money. Yeah. <laughs> so Chesterton was, uh, made a lot of money in his lifetime, but he also gave a lot of it w- away. Uh, he practiced what he called promiscuous charity. And he also threw money into causes that he thought were worthwhile that other people thought not. But whenever he needed money, uh, a Father Brown story was what, was what he would cook up. Right, right. Now, another another thing, you know, you oh, mentioned a couple before, of auto, auto – oh, go ahead. Glenn, before go ahead. we move off of Father Brown, I just want to uh, note that the BBC productions of Father Brown, the most recent ones that are out, um, the early ones are things that Chesterton might approve of. But after a yes. while, you start getting BBC Christianity – which yeah, right. would not fall under the category of orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah they're just loosely uh, inspired by the character. Kind of what's, like what's happening with Tolkien and Amazon. You know, what, you, know, you know, there comes a point when a character becomes so beloved and so kind of uh, important to sort of the, you know, the cultural sort of uh, ethos that 
it's almost like he's public property and people can do stuff with him. You know, you see it with Sherlock Holmes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of fan fiction out there. Uh, I, I've actually reviewed, uh, you know, uh, reboots or reimaginings of Chesterton novels, and uh, most of them, yeah, I don't think they they would <laughs> they would meet his <laughs> approvals. <so. laughs> now, there are a couple of other works of fiction that I really like from Chesterton that I, I would recommend. If uh, I would say to get into Chesterton's fiction initially, Father Brown's great place to start. Very lovable character. But if you're interested in more of this metaphysical uh, stuff, you know, there's the man who is Thursday. And yeah. then I would say uh, the Napoleon of Notting Hill. The Napoleon of Notting Hill is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, but anyway, those are a couple of good ones. Yeah. Napoleon of Notting Hill, it gets into the distributism. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm actually but, a big fan of the man who is Thursday. I've actually yeah, that, thought about doing a podcast around that one. Oh, it's, yeah. that That's fun. Yeah. It's a brilliant book, and he actually wrote that the same year he wrote Orthodoxy. And it was meant to dispel, in a similar way to Orthodoxy, it's meant to dispel, uh, you know, the, the kind of fin de siècle, you know, the late 19th century um, fear that there was really nothing out there and that we lived in a, a nihilistic world uh, where, you know, where the universe has no, has no floor or ceiling. As, as he put it. And so it's a very powerful, it, unfortunately, you know, people who are also kind of going off the deep end also love the man who was Thursday, Robert Hansen, the famous FBI spy, read it over and over again. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think you have to become, you don't have to become a, a traitor to, uh, to enjoy that novel. So. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting because this is kind of where uh, a couple of aspects of his work come together because you have these stories that are really drawing off of the kind of the religious and philosophical vision. He's, he's also um, learning and writing about and participating in. I mean, uh, people speak very highly of his work on Aquinas, um, especially in terms of getting a hold of the metaphysics um, and, and articulating it. And I've heard, you know, and, and read a lot of very um, accomplished Thomists still reference that work. Uh, maybe you could speak a little to that. Yeah, the uh, so Thomas Aquinas' uh, book, I mean, it's fascinating. The story of how he wrote this uh, was pretty interesting. You know, he'd been he'd had this idea and he decided to go for it. And so his longtime secretary, Dorothy Collins, he he said, you know, come in here. And he basically dictated, you know, about half the book over a week or two. (laughs) And then he said, "Um, Dorothy, go go to London and get some books. <laughs> and she said, "What books?" And he said, "I, I don't know. Ask Father Martindale, or you know, <laughs> one of these famous Jesuits who was uh, at the time in, in London." And so she went, procured a bunch of the books, uh, brought them back. He flipped through them, you know, carefully, and you know, and then dictated the rest of the book. Uh, <laughs> but it, uh, it, uh, that book is is very powerful. And as Tom said. Uh, many accomplished Thomists have said things. Etienne Gilson, the famous uh, French yep. scholar of Thomas Aquinas, yep. basically said, you know, I've studied Thomas all my life, mm-hmm. and this book makes me despair that I, I could not write something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Joseph Pieper, who yeah. was a German, was a little bit more, you know, he had to get in a little bit about how it wasn't <laughs> quite 
academic <laughs> for that, but essentially he said, yes, but it is still genius. Uh, Jacques Maritain, sim- similar sorts of comments. So yeah. a lot of people have, have used that to get at the heart of what uh, Thomas's ideas were. And, and that's one where he's, he's very, he's not hard on Calvin so much in that book, uh, but or he's Luther. hard on Luther. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, I love the book. I, I read it years ago. The Dumb the Ox. Dumb, the Dumb Ox, yeah. The yes, Dumb Ox, the name, yeah. The name of it, which is, you know, the, um, I guess, kind of the the nickname that, you know, they had for him in the University of Paris. And yeah. uh, uh, his classmates didn't see his talent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but getting to, to Chesterton and, and his, his approach. So here's my, here's my theory. There are some uh, rare uh, people in the world who can kind of get to the heart of something really fast. They just have sort of a nose for it or an eye for it, and they just intuit. They you know they, they kind of are introduced to a particular system of thought, and they just jump to it, the center of it, and say, this is what it's all about. And I've heard uh, the description of, you know, how Chesterton went about writing this, you know, biography on Thomas and, and heard the same story that you told. And I thought that had to be kind of the way he operated all the time because he was so prolific and was able to engage such a wide range of subjects. Uh, there was no way that he just set, spent all of his time coming through books line by line. <laughs> he, he, knew, he knew how to kind of leap to the center of things pretty fast. Yeah. He, I mean, I think that's, that's part of his gift is that he was able, and you know, a lot of people criticize him because, you know, they say he either, he gets no, he has no dates in his books or he gets the dates wrong. Um, and, you know, and it, there's a certain amount of truth to that, but you know, it's better to, to get the dates wrong and get the ideas right than the opposite way around in, in my view. Um, and he did have an astonishing uh, mind for mind for detail and for quotations. Uh, you know, part of the reason why I think you know people will say the same thing about his quotations that many of them are you know slightly off. But that's because he was that old fashioned kind of guy who read these things and he didn't look them up. He quoted them as he remembered them. Right. And uh, you know, many of them I suppose are probably happily happily misremembered. Maybe he's improved them a little bit. But <laughs> but I think that's. That's the key, though, is that he wanted to get to the heart of the matter and uh, and not stick around the uh, the edges of the footnotes. So, yeah, when I think about people from the past who would have done great on Twitter, Chesterton would rule Twitter. <laughs> yeah. he, he just had a way with the pithy, uh, you know, kind of statement. People who uh, people who read his books, you know, they get frustrated because. You know, if you if you if you're a person who underlines or puts check marks or stars by you know, you're doing that about six times a you know yeah. a page. <laughs> yeah. it's these witty formulations, and some people credit you know I mean, you know for, some people criticized his his prose style. They said he was you know he was often known as the Prince of Paradox, and they said that he went for sort of witty formulations at the expense of of truth. I you know I mean. Uh, I, I think there's probably some truth to that, but at the same time, uh, you know, he's his works are kind of like fireworks shows. Um, you know, you have to kind of go back, you know, get back through the footage and look at each individual thing going off. Uh, but but even so, when you when you read it, sort of all the way through, it does provide the effect of like the grand finale because you're just whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah. And, and they're hard. Uh, you know, orthodoxy, you know, you mentioned is probably one of the most famous ones. It's fascinating how many people who are Chesterton fans don't necessarily like that book. And I think it's because 
uh, there's so much philosophical background in there that he's expressing in ordinary language uh, that if you don't quite know what, what what he's going for, you're not really aware of the deep yep. conversation he's having uh, with the Western philosophical tradition and to a certain extent, um, Eastern philosophical traditions. Yeah, I think too that uh, there are a number of people that he has been influential with in terms of bringing them to the faith. I think about Marshall McLuhan. I remember an interview with him and he credited Chesterton uh, with his own, uh, you know, coming to, to, into the Christian faith. But um, I, you know, there he's, he's like Lewis in that respect. There are yeah. just lots of people. I think, I think John Rist as well. Is that correct? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was really, uh, yeah, I think, I think he stumbled somewhat upon Chesterton and then moved to Newman. Very common. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one of the things. C.S. Lewis too. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you've read his uh, autobiography, you remember he says uh, a thoroughgoing atheist cannot be too careful about his reading. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because he stumbled on Chesterton's Everlasting Man, particularly, and uh, you know that kind of blew the blew blew his atheism up in a way. Yeah, and they, they were kind of I think back to your point about his his uh, his style and approach, and, and I think especially in orthodoxy. But one of the things I remember even from the first time I read it um, was there, there's a boldness to it. Um, that did speak, like you said, um, from a deep well of, of you know, the, the philosophical traditions and theological conversations. Um, but then there was also just a, a kind of boldness in his approach where he just jumps right into the ethics of elf, elf land, for example, or something that really would have taken kind of the, the rationalist dispositions or the kind of um, experientialist dispositions and really, I think, uh, unsettled them um, for for a lot of people that weren't immersed in that, and even a lot of I think of the evangelical Christian world, some of that can be would have been very offsetting when it tried to do this hyper rational or evidential apologetic. And here you have someone appealing to kind of imagination and, and romance and and this this whole kind of romantic world, but but not reducing it to romanticism. And and so you have this very boldness, but then he also has a way of of utilizing um, very memorable ways of putting things, as you just said, you both were referencing. And I really think of, of that work in particular as, as highlighting that, that emphasis. Yeah I, yeah, I think so often we think of kind of the bohemian sort of disposition as being irre- irreconcilable with the Christian faith. But Chesterton was a bohemian. And, you know, <laughs> he was, uh, and so I've kind of, I've, I've got a bohemian background myself. And, um, it's true that, you know, it's a funky sort of place to be from, be from but he's, a, he's an example of what is possible when this sort of artistic uh, sort of free spirit uh, gets uh, gripped by the grace of God and is, is, uh, his talents are put to good use. Because everybody, I, I mean, you know, when you think about like, you know, George Bernard Shaw, who uh, is not a friend of the Christian faith, loved <laughs> Chesterton, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so that's the kind of thing. And, and, and you know, we, 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 we've made fun of the sort of the winsome cult uh, in the reformed world, this, this sort of idea that we can just kind of bring people around uh, if we're just winsome enough. Well, the problem is, is that most of the winsomeness that I see on display from these people is a bunch of regurgitated uh, you know, sort of stuff that doesn't have any genuine creative flair. I mean, if, if more of our winsome people were actually winsome in the way Chesterton was winsome, <laughs> I'd have, I'd be, I'd find it easier to support them. 
His friend, Hilaire Belloc, actually uh, criticized him in an essay after his death and said, you know, Chesterton didn't really have the, you know, the true sort of, you know, killer instinct to, you know, put down his enemies. But of course, the, the response to that is, well, that, that may be true, but there are a lot more converts who are made by by Chesterton than by, you know, Belloc is for people who are already kind of inside. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's every, everybody loves a kind of a pugilist who's on our side and sticks it to them. But, but Chesterton knew how to be a pugilist, but also how to make friends. Um, and so he, you know, he wasn't, he was somebody who was great at satirizing people, but he had a kind of you know, it was a it was a gentle and friendly push, and that's why he kept these people like Wells and uh, and you know you noted Shaw. All these people were Chesterton's friends. Uh, Wells said that if if he did get to heaven ever, if there was a heaven, it would only be because he was Gilbert's friend, and that, that's something <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, 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 that is. You know, one of the things that's I think worth noting here on sort of a larger level is that we live in an era in which we nuance things to death. You can't make a general statement because there is one exception out there. <laughs> and that, that is both rhetorically and epistemologically inept. And I think Chesterton understood that. I don't think he was in quite the era we're in as far as that goes. But I think that that accounts for a lot of the, well, the lack of nuance, the lack of precision, things like that. He's interested, as we said before, at getting at the heart of the matter and if he's a little fuzzy on the details, it doesn't really matter because he is at the heart of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uh, I, and I think, you know, many of his works are very detailed and they're they're very powerful to to read in part because he does acknowledge, uh, you know, the strengths of his enemies as well. But what you know, what his genius is, this is to say, well, yeah, I, we, we work on the same – and he uses this in orthodoxy. He'll say, well, you know, why do I believe in Christianity? It's for the same reasons that other people don't believe in Christianity. <laughs> it's the way of, of construing all of the facts together. And so he's perfectly willing to admit lots of these details and these nuances. But what he wants to say is let's put them together in a different way. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, um, one of the things to kind of uh, – you know, maybe this would be a good point to make a transition to distributism is uh, with distributism, you know, we've got kind of, uh, as you noted, third way. This is a kind of bringing together of some things that maybe people don't generally, you know, put together. Uh, sometimes I think uh, people misconstrue distributism uh, and interpret it through a, a, a lens that I don't think is uh, appropriate, like it's socialism or it's mm -hmm. communism or anything like that. When in fact it's it's neither of those things. It's not exactly um, you know uh, Jeffersonian um, agrarianism either, but there are similarities to things. So, uh, can you give us a little uh, definition uh, of uh, distributism? Yeah, uh, David. Yeah. So this was the term uh, they used various terms, but distributism was what most of them settled on. Um, it was thinkers like Belloc and Chesterton. There was a distributist league who worked together, and they did see it as a third way between capitalism and socialism. And they said, well, the, you know, the, 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 their, to their way of thinking, to Chesterton's way of thinking, socialism is where the state owns all the means of production and controls mm -hmm. them. Capitalism is where a few very rich people or corporations own everything and, and run everything. 
Um, and for them, what they wanted was a broadly distributed uh, property base. Uh, and so, you know, I think there I think there are ways to compare him to the American founders, for instance, that they wanted a, a large landowning uh, population who would be able to, to fend for themselves. Uh, so for Chesterton, it's uh, he would often say, uh, you know, I, the problem with capitalism is that there just aren't enough capitalists. <laughs> and so they advocated against working for people, or at least, you know, the ideal would be that most people would work for themselves and make contracts uh, to do that, and that there would be a broad distribution of property and there would be more authority in individual households. Um, the trick with this is how do you get to that state? Um, you know, Belloc, uh, you know, always talked about, well, you know what, we'd need at least a one-time 25% wealth tax to get enough, and then we would redistribute it to everybody. And then after that, you could go back to, a, you know, maybe a 2% flat tax, which, you know, I mean, I think Steve Forbes would love that if that were <laughs> that possible. Uh, so the question with, you know, with some of the, the ways of getting to where they wanted to go are the question of distribution. What do you mean by, uh, is there a distributor who will redistribute these things or do we mean a kind of a voluntary uh, di distribution of, the, of, of goods and land and property and things like that? Um, so that's basically what they wanted. And they thought of themselves, most of the distributists, not all of them were Catholic, but most of them were, as simply applying the insights of Catholic social thought, uh, particularly as, uh, as enunciated by Pope Leo XIII in his 1891 encyclical Rerum Novarum on the new things, or, uh, or Pope Pius XI the, uh, the, the in his uh, 1931 encyclical Quadragesimo Anno on the 40th anniversary of, of Rerum Novarum. Um, and so they leaned sometimes towards a kind of a corporatism uh, where the government and corporations and people would all work together. But, uh, but I think the basic idea of widely distributed property and individual in, uh, initiative, I think it is, is a sound one. So, Yeah, I think that, you know, when I think about Distributism, I think of an ideal. This is in uh, Chesterton is an idealist, and he and the term ideal is not a bad term. You know, what you have is to say, okay, this is something that would be great, isn't it? Uh, something that would be great when you agree. And then, you know, the secondary tertiary matters are concerned, you know, how it's possible to kind of bring those things about. But I think uh, sometimes people are too dismissive of ideals because of the problems with getting to the ideal. You know, so they'll just say, well, that's just a bunch of building castles in the clouds. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, you know, don't, don't waste your time with that. Um, but I think that the, uh, you know, this ideal is, you, you noted something that they were reflecting on Catholic social doctrine uh, to develop. But I see uh, similarities uh in other places. I mean, uh, when we think about, say, uh, Kyperian sphere sovereignty and the importance of being able to exercise, you know, your creative energies in a particular sphere that you inhabit uh, mm -hmm. and the idea, the idea that property is in some sense uh, an externalization of your, you know, your own sort of inner life. Um, 
and these things, you know, come together. So when I've talked to, you know, distributists in the Catholic world, you know, you know, and I'll bring up, say, Kuiper, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's just the reformed way to say the same thing. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> but but also, you know, when I, I, I made the quip about the agrarians, you know, in America, you know, the southern agrarians, but also, you know, the traditional Republican ideal, yeah. you know, that you see in the Greek polis and so forth. Uh, it all comes together, you know, the idea that the physical world and the economic sort of a- activity that we engage in with it uh, is a school of virtue. It's a way for us to work together in, in a communal order, but at the same time recognizing each other as sort of, you know, independent agents and not sort of trying to control each other. And, and anyway, so um, yeah. the parallels. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, this is, you know, one of these fun things. Chesterton would refer to Hudge and Gudge. And mm-hmm. by Hudge, he meant big government. And by Gudge, he meant big business. Now, why he didn't make the G government, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> some reason behind that. Um, Dale Alquist, the president of the Society of G.K. Chesterton, likes to refer to a third one that, uh, you know, we now have, which is sludge. That's big, envir- <laughs> big environmentalism. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but what Chesterton and Bellick said was, look, this is the problem is that um, what we have is what, what they call business government or the servile state. And that's so although although they had their own sort of leanings in certain ways toward a kind of corporatist model where the government is interlocked with with businesses, they recognized that 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 was a, that was a real danger in the, in the here and now that uh Large corporations and and very rich people uh, can combine with governments, at, you know, to uh, to take over things. And you know, we see this yeah. with the you know, you don't have to be a crazy uh, conspiracy theorist to say that those people at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, yeah. don't really have ordinary people's best interests in mind. <laughs> yeah. uh, unfortunately, yeah. there's too many too many video clips of them saying what they really believe yeah. uh, to to think to think otherwise. And that's what Chesterton and Belloc were were worried about the distributists were worried about, and they thought that not not in the kind of way perhaps necessarily that Marx would think this, but um, but maybe more in the way Solzhenitsyn thought that you know Solzhenitsyn complained that the uh, that in, the businessmen would sell the, the the communists the rope with which to hang themselves, <laughs> uh, you know, just as Lenin had said, and yeah. uh, so they, they they were worried about that, and they wanted that independence. You mentioned the Napoleon of Notting Hill. Uh, you know, a kind of situation in which the main character, that uh, Adam Wayne, uh, you know, declares, uh, you know, a sort of uh, sovereignty in Notting Hill, a, a, a neighborhood in London, and brings back the old ways. And that yeah. was something that they wanted was that independence of the household and of local communities. And perhaps it's no surprise that many of the distributists now will call themselves localists. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I think that that's. I think it's worth noting. This is me in my historian hat. Uh, It's worth noting that uh, Kuiper and the uh, the Belloc, uh, Chesterton, and others are all living at about the same time. Yeah. So they are responding to the kinds of things that are emerging in their era and responding, not surprisingly, in parallel ways. And the fear that they saw of. what was it, Hudge and Budge? Or Hudge and Gudge. Hudge and Gudge. <laughs> the fear that they saw of business and government allying themselves, that is actually the technical definition of fascism. Yeah. 
You know, they saw it coming. And we're seeing it in new, new forms today, but it's essentially still a very similar kind of problem. But what's interesting to me is that, that coming from different theological and philosophical backgrounds, you get Kuiper and the distributists coming up with parallel answers. Um, I, I, like I said, for me as a historian, I find that, that yeah. facet of this very interesting. Well, there are scholars too, like uh, Steve Graybill and uh, Daryl Charles, who've pointed out, uh, you know, how Thomistic at least the Calvinist tradition was. Yeah, uh, you know, like he said Chesterton in the Damox attacked Luther, not Calvin. There, yeah, uh, and and that's because uh, Luther's uh, sort of inability to conceive of uh, much beyond beyond the law beyond the law's ability to convict us of guilt is something that was not true of the Calvinist tradition. And particularly in the, the second generation after Calvin, there was a kind of, yeah. there was a kind of Thomistic consensus, or at least, yeah. you know, a kind of similar framework that was operating. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a, a common intellectual and even spiritual heritage to a certain extent between, you know, like I said, many Catholics I know, oh, Calvinists are so bad. Like, you know, all <laughs> they can think about is limited atonement. And, you know, I'm yeah. like, okay, well, fine, but, you know, but you have to look at the whole of things. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think you're identifying uh, a place where there there is a great commonality in, in the traditions. Yeah, I, I think that this is something that just I'd like to throw out to get your thoughts on, uh, David. Um, my my conviction is that the theologies that have to uh, deal with the question of how to govern a large community that's heterogeneous in character, you know, uh, not just everybody is, a, you know, Roman Catholic or not just everybody is uh, reformed, but nevertheless, as reformed as Roman Catholics, we have to think about the principles of government uh, and the, and the use of, uh, you know, force, uh, the course of power of the state uh, that forces you to think about things in ways that say, uh, say a Methodist, would never have had to think, uh, you know, Methodism is this sort of cosseted sort of private sort of drawing room, uh, theology. Uh, it's, you know, associated with Anglicanism, but it never, uh, had to do the work as Methodism, uh, with regard to a theology of rule. Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of the, the, you know, you, you mentioned the Thomism sort of the, the, the nature of the law and so forth. I think these are things that that the Reformed and Roman Catholics have had to deal with. You know, how, what about the law? Is it, is it all just make you feel guilty and sort of focus mm -hmm. on your personal salvation? Or is there something right. um, sort of more inclusive that's being addressed? My late friend, uh, Charlie Rice, who was a longtime law professor at the University of Notre Dame, he would he would go on the local Christian television station and he would he was on there several times with uh, R.J. Rushdoony, the theonomist. Oh, yeah, sure. Background, you know, taking the Old Testament law and applying it. And Charlie, you know, Charlie was like, yeah, you're on the right track. You know, I don't you're not, you're not quite, you know, but there was a similarity. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it was that understanding that revelation is whole. Uh, and it's there's an organic relationship between the Old and the New Testament uh, that is going to guide us. It doesn't give us instant answers, uh, especially, you know, as Chris points out, especially when you're dealing with, uh, you know, anything larger than a small community that's uh, that's 
religiously homogeneous. And, you know, people like to, you know, I suppose just as Catholics and Calvinists fight, other people will lump Calvinists and Catholics together. You know, they both had bad experiments and in uh, theocratic or, you know, quasi-theocratic. But at the same time, you know, these are real questions. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not into the, uh, you know, there are a small group of Catholics who are integralists who want to bring back the sort of the Catholic. I'm not really into that. I think that's a mistake. Uh, but at the same time, we're we're facing real questions these days, as as Christendom is evaporating, and as the uh, the common cultural understanding of what the human person is and who God is evaporates. We have to ask the questions: Well, what <laughs> what kind of agreement do we need to have in order to survive as a people? And and those are hard questions. But as yeah. you know, as you pointed out. Uh, Catholics and Calvinists have thought about them for for a long time and have have had to face those questions in a way that perhaps some others uh, have not had to think. Yeah, I think that we're living with transhumanism, uh, and their solution is just eliminate the human. Right. right. <laughs> Let's just oh, get rid right. of the uh, human race and uh, replace it with something of our own devising. You right. Know? Cyborgs. <laughs> right. I think right. I know. Uh, speaking as a Protestant, but very indebted to the the the, the whole uh, Christian tradition, um, in the Fathers in particular, but uh, Thomas and the Medievals and and the like is what I what I've discovered through my own work and with other people working in the field is just how significant the loss of the cl- classic metaphysical visions that that someone like Chesterton was still working with um, how that has hurt in many ways I can speak of it as a Protestant because it does it, it does I, I think when we're starting to have to get move up against questions about human nature um, and ends and teleology, um, a lot of people in our camp aren't used to doing that. And the minute we mention some sources that may help them, even if they have to be kind of aligned with some of the other core convictions of, of this tradition, um, they get very suspicious and want nothing to do with it and start hurling kind of the old, old, old you know, names. And they're losing the very riches they, they actually have. Someone like Vermigli, for example, who was originally a Catholic, converts during the Reformation, great friends with Calvin, but an outstandingly committed Aristotelian and Thomas, and was able to, to engage those questions and, and actually retard the spread of nominalism and, and, and the like in, in the Protestant world for at least several, you know, for, for a long, you know, slowed it yeah. down, let's put it that way. And I, and I really, I think that's one of the things that hurts us is the fear sometimes of delving into those theologians that we all can lay claim to as Christians without having to take everything they, they, they've put out there. Mm-hmm. I think that's the great uh, that's the great gift of thinkers like Chesterton and Lewis and uh, you know Joseph Pieper, a philosopher, but who wrote not you know non non German non analytic mm-hmm. philosophy type texts uh, is that uh, their late father James Shaw used to refer to yeah. the, the the little guides to the great thinkers yeah. um, because people today don't have as you point out Tom they they don't have the background to understand the philosophical importance of these things. Yeah. And so you need these, these figures who will introduce how important they are. I mean, Chesterton's orthodoxy, as I said, is very difficult because it's dealing with this Western philosophical heritage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a very good little book uh, by a guy named uh, Scott Randall Payne 
mm-hmm. on Chesterton's Orthodox. I can't remember the title at the moment, but it's basically he's a philosopher and he's trying to show what Chesterton's doing with the tradition to argue against the kind of uh, nihilism and the kind of subjectivism that was really starting to sweep the Western world. Uh, mm. So Chesterton's really arguing for a very traditional way of seeing the world that, as I said, as a kind of pre-theology, yeah. you have to have this uh, yeah. in order to inter- in order to look right. Yeah. So when we think about the economics, uh, you know, what we have uh, is, you know, uh, you know, Chesterton developing his his proposal or supposal with regard to distributism roughly at the same time that people are trying to institute uh, Marx and his thought. Uh, And then you have uh, the rise of progressivism uh, in the West with the sort of the administrative state with people like Woodrow Wilson uh, and, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and and those folks. Um, so this is the way not taken, in other words. <laughs> so yeah. it's, the, it's the third way, but it's the way not taken. But, but are, there, are there any examples that maybe you can point to, David, that you think actually sort of at least are sort of an attempt to embody these principles? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of examples that most people will give. And one of them is in the Emilia-Romagna uh, region of uh, of Italy. Uh, so there's a lot of more cooperative businesses. Um, and then there's an area in Spain. Uh, I'm, I've suddenly blanked on the name of this area, but it was... It's a, uh, it's a, the Basque country? Is it's that in the Basque country. And yeah. there's a, a company that was founded by a, a priest and a group of Catholic lay people that was meant to be a kind of cooperative that was living out these values. And it's still around today. Now it's a, it's a massive corporation um, that, that people are usually referring to when they talk about this, but it's, uh, you know, it's something it's, you know, got something like 80,000 employees and not all of them are really in the cooperative. So, it, you know, it hasn't completely worked out, but it has provided at least some of that. And, and I think that there are a lot of, uh, you know, smaller models of this. I mean, I have friends who like to point out farmers markets are a good, yeah. you know, a good example of this. Uh, many other kinds of small, more informal and localized markets are ways in which we can live a little bit more, uh, more freely. Um, you know, the question is, you know, th- this is part of our, I guess, part of our, our, our present discontents is, you know, the Internet, especially the, the, uh, the kind of less, the less cloistered Internet of maybe 15 or 20 years ago, was sort of making possible, you know, something more along the lines of this decentralized and distributed economy. Today now it's been sort of sucked up into a lot of the big firms, uh, mm. but at the same time it does provide some outlets for smaller companies to find their markets and things like that. Uh, the question is, you know, how much of this is going to continue under big tech's reign, uh, mm. where you know we seem to be trying to install a kind of uh, you know Chinese uh, social credit system, and yeah. companies are now being blackballed. Um, yeah. You know, that, that's one of the big questions that we have. There are some people who are pushing back on this and tr- trying to provide new alliances and a new infrastructure, I think, especially of the new founding corporation in Dallas that's run right. by a Calvinist, Nate Fisher, yeah, yeah, and, I know uh, Nate. and Catholic, Matt Peterson, uh, working <laughs> together. 
but uh, you know, we need we need more people to to be working on this project of of taking this this road not taken. Yeah, you know, speaking of that particular effort in Dallas, we're going to be uh, you know uh, hosting a conference uh, here in Southern Washington. And some of those guys are going to actually going to be with us uh, great. Talk, talking about what they're doing at, at the conference. Um, I guess, uh, well, let, let's just sort of freewheel this a little bit. You know, it's kind of amusing to think about the sort of the, the wild west of the early Internet, where everybody thought this was going to be sort of like the way for us to all be free. And <laughs> <laughs> now it's the it's becoming kind of that Orwellian thing that, uh, yeah. you know, we, we've, we feared it might become. Um, one of the things I think uh, that is a hard thing for us to reconcile ourselves to is the role of the government uh, in keeping uh, some of these things in check. So, you know, if, for example, you know, BlackRock, the big, uh, you know, venture capital firm, which has decided to save the world, you know, mm-hmm. by imposing, you know, liberal sort of shtick on every corporate uh, entity that it gives money to or funds, yes. uh, funds. Um, there are a number of states now that are um, threatening suit uh, with BlackRock. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is, of course, something that the libertarian streak in many conservative uh, reform people uh, kind of recoil, uh, you know, from. Nevertheless, it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to rein these guys in without the threat of heavy fines and even jail time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, well, I mean, one way to think about it is I do think that, you know, you know, I I wrote an essay a while ago on what, you know, uh, can I be a libertarian or something like that? And it seems to me that, that, you know, many people do have a, a libertarian streak and they recognize that there has to be a proper a proper freedom of action and letting people make their own decisions, particularly in the marketplace. That's constrained by certain certain limitations of the moral law and such like uh, other you know, libertarians, uh, you know, go in the transhumanist direction and uh, they you know, they want to make it up. And I think, you know, you have so you have kind of you know, two similar visions of liberty. In one, I think you could group, you know, Chesterton and Michael Novak and all sorts of people as have being libertarian in general. Uh, and the other, you're, you're not. And so too with government. Um, I think, you know, for both Calvinists and Catholics, um, government is not an alien thing that is imposed upon us, but is a natural part of human society very dangerous part of human society, but a natural one nonetheless, just as the family is. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, for many Christians, we, you know, we have to get over our aversion to thinking about how to govern and thinking that government is just purely a dirty business. It's it's a necessary business. It's you know, just like taking out the trash. Uh, you know, lots of people don't want to do it, but it's got to be done. And you're going to, you might, will you get dirty? Quite possibly. But, uh, you know, this calling that that we have to actually, uh, you know, uh, imitate Christ and to participate in his own uh, role as not only priest and prophet, but as king has to happen not only in our everyday lives, but also in our society. And that's going to require using force 
and authority in ways that sometimes we would prefer not to do, but are but are necessary. Yeah, maybe a good way to think about this is we're willing to use force, but we really would rather not, uh, as opposed to just sort of we never use force or force solves every problem. (laughs) Right, right. It's another middle way. Right, that's right, right, right. So as we kind of of elaborate a little bit on Chesterton and uh, what he's uh, left us, what do you think would be uh, his preoccupation today? I mean, what, what would be the things that would he just be still, you know, concerned about the same things in your opinion? I think that his, his stuff is relevant. You can read it like it's today's news. Yeah. But at, but at the same time, um, maybe he would be interested in some other things. Have you, have you given that any thought? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there are certain I think he would be interested in many of the same subjects because they are perennial. It's you know, it's it's one of those things where. You know, the, 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 the preoccupations are the same, only the names and perhaps the technology has changed. But he was looking forward to things like the Internet in his own time, you know, sort of imagining ways in which people could write down their own ideas and draw their own pictures in the public sphere in some sort of, you know, higher. He had no idea about what how it was going to look like, but he knew that that would be there. But I think it would be the same issues and particularly the notion of what it means to be to be human. Um, he saw, you know, he saw this notion of getting rid of the family and of marriage. And he thought that the central, the central revolution that we had to have socially was the revolution of the family in which the family again takes center stage and is, is, uh, not, you know, not simply an agent of the government, but instead is is the primary thing with its own authority, uh, you know, its own Kyperian sphere, um, its own place in the subsidiarity chain, you know, however you want to formulate it. I think he would think that those were the main questions. And I think he would not be surprised um, at the direction of transhumanism because he understood uh, that what, what people wanted was to flee from actually being under the limits uh, that God has imposed by us by being human. Uh, people were already doing the same kinds of things that they're doing today in, in odder sorts of ways. Um, but, uh, but today I think he would be, be talking about the same things. And I think he would probably still, uh, be a skeptic in certain ways of capitalism as it's lived out, because as, you know, I think Glenn pointed out, you know, it's, it's crony capitalism that goes at least definitionally toward fascism, I think he would be worried about that, and I think he would be still proclaiming that that need for independence, and he would also be proclaiming the main thing that people need to understand is that uh, that without God, <laughs> the whole thing doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, any any thoughts you guys have, or questions you have for for David here, as we're kind of bringing things into a close? Um, I, I, w- I was just kind of thinking as we were talking about it, how the time of Chesterton and, and after Chesterton, um, there really was, you know, interestingly, these these calls to, you know, the human being as the center of all things. Um, and the focus was all on the human. And in, it was his intuition through his, you know, his obviously his theological and philosophical vision that the pressing concerns were going to be the very question 
of humanity at a time yeah. where it was center stage. And it's interesting because a lot of what has happened in the theological, philosophical world is we now are starting to get, you know, uh, to retrieve um, the fact that when when the human is placed in the center, we lose it. When when it's actually brought back into you know, it's, you know, the source from which, through which, and to which it is, all of a sudden you start to have definition and clarity or, or a bit more clarity on it. So, yeah, I was just kind of, I was, I was thinking about how that, the irony that the, the age he was in um, emphasized the human so much that he was already intuiting the loss of the human. Yeah. He said yeah. that, he said that in the end, everything would be a theological dispute even two plus two equals four. Well, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, that's really where we are today. Uh, we've yeah. completely lost reason. Uh, we've, you know, we've lost almost all of these things. And we have, we're, you know, we're down what he called the hardest groove of all, the groove of progress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Do you have any thoughts, Glenn? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm reminded of something. I don't remember whether we did talked about this on the podcast, but there are certain people that you look at that look almost prophetic in terms of where they, you know, things that they've said about where things are going. Lewis is one of the obvious examples, Francis Schaeffer more recently, uh, and to some extent, Chesterton. And I think that, that the reason for this is that they were able to take a clear and unvarnished look at the ideas that were circulating in their society and ask themselves the question, if these things are allowed to take root, what happens? Where does it lead? Um, so, you know, they, they, you're dealing in, you know, with Chesterton, even with Lewis, to some extent, you're dealing with a, a culture that's got a strong residual of Christianity in it. So that the things that they talked about weren't visible at the time. But understanding the logic Getting, as we said about Chesterton, getting at the heart of the ideas, they could see where it where they end up. Yeah, yeah. So, David, as as we kind of wrap things up here, I, there are a couple questions I have. One is, is there anything in sort of Chesterton studies that is under sort of uh, uh, written about or or underappreciated? that you'd like to see more work done in? And then the, the second question is, is, so let's say a person has never read Chesterton, where would you advise that person begin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in, as far as what's understudied, I think it's, it, we're just now seeing more actual sort of theological explorations of Chesterton's work. We've seen a little bit of it in various places, um, you know, Aidan Nichols and, uh, and, you know, a few other people have written about him as a theologian, but I'm starting to find more people who are saying, you know, I'd like to actually look at the idea of what it is to have faith or, you know, particular ideas uh, that, that he expresses. Since he's not a systematic theologian or even a systematic writer, that means reading a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's difficult. But I think, I think that's one of the, one of the understudied things is, is actually his, his sort of more distinctly theological works. Um, what was your second question, Chris? If a person had never read anything by Chesterton, uh, oh, yeah. where, would you, where would you direct that person? Yeah, I would. I, I would actually say probably uh, 
to start with uh, the if you like detective fiction, Father Brown stories are great, and you get a lot of his philosophy there as well. Um, another work that I would say uh, is excellent, perhaps my favorite work, is a, a short novel or novella that he wrote in 1912 called Man Alive. And it's about a group of sort of late 20, early 30-somethings uh, living in a boarding house in suburban London. And they are invaded by this this character named Innocent Smith, who turns their world upside down uh, by examining all of their assumptions and making them look at the world anew. Uh, I've compared it to, you know, what if you wrote, what if Chesterton wrote the show Friends? You know, a, bunch of, a bunch of unmarried people sort of wasting their lives. Um, and there he gets he he gets at this notion that there has to be a kind of ascetical element to life. You can't just indulge everything. Uh, and that you have to actually simply open your eyes and see what's around you and to pierce through that to, to see the God who's behind it. So I would say Man Alive and, uh, and the, uh, the stories there. Some people, of course, will say orthodoxy. I think that's a little hard. Uh, but of course, there are, there are hundreds and probably thousands of his, his short essays that are wonderful to get a, a glimpse of his view of, of the world as lit up by wonder. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. So we really appreciate your time, David. Uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about what you're up to, uh, the stuff that you write, uh, the things that you're interested in, where should they go? Well, you can uh, you can contact me. You can find me on the website now, I believe, at the St. Thomas Houston site, stthom.edu. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and, uh, I actually have a, have a newsletter, a monthly newsletter. So contact me and ask to be on my newsletter and you'll, you'll get stuff that I'm involved in and writing and, uh, and all of that. So I think Chris, you're, you've been on it for a while. So yeah, yeah, I get so it. invite other people. Yeah, I, I do. I do enjoy it. Well, one of the places where people might be able to get a hold of some of the things that you've written is the imaginative conservative. Yes, I should. Yeah, I forgot that. I'm, I'm a senior contributor. I probably got 130 or 140 essays on the imaginative conservative. So yeah, definitely look at that. The imaginativeconservative.org. Now, in terms of your more academic stuff, you were the editor, and are you still the editor at Lyos? I just stepped down. Uh, Logos, okay. a journal of Catholic thought and culture. So yeah, uh, yeah. it's a wonderful interdisciplinary uh, journal. Uh, so yeah, check that out. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, it's been great to have you. Thanks for listening, uh, folks out there in podcast land. Uh, we, uh, as you know, enjoy talking about people like Chesterton and talking to friends like David. Uh, and uh, we appreciate the fact that a number of you uh, support us on a monthly basis or, uh, through different uh, uh, formats or, or forums. Uh, there's the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We have a lot of folks that support us through that. Uh, we have people who support us on Patreon. Uh, we actually have... Uh, a growing number of uh, Rousseau's assassins there, so so that's what that's the highest level that you can uh, can give to us on a monthly basis. You can enjoy uh, being a participant in that endeavor to create a time machine to go back and kill Rousseau. Uh, uh, the, then there are, of course, folks who give to us in other ways, and uh, just thank you, uh, one and all, for your ongoing support of this uh, this podcast. I think we're getting up to close to 200 shows we've done, and it just is a kind of mind-blowing for us to think about the fact that uh, we, uh, you know, 
have a, an audience that cares to listen to us each week. <laughs> we our, our own wives won't. <laughs> we need an outlet. <laughs> you can find out about that in Man Alive. He talks about <laughs> Yeah, it, it, Chester on the subject of husbands and wives is great. He's got a lot of things to say about that. But anyway, thanks again for listening to the show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.